series that we are in all summer on the book of Ephesians. And what we're doing together as a church and as a church network is we're walking through uh, this book that the Apostle Paul wrote to this small group of Christians in this city of uh, Ephesus. And, uh, you know, when I think about summer projects, you know, there's a lot of yard work and things. I'm sure many of you guys are doing yard work. And uh, maybe one of the worst summer project, yard work project, at least in my mind, is, is removing landscape rock. Have any of you guys done this? It's just, it is, it's awful. It's backbreaking. Um, unless you have a bobcat, which, praise God from whom all blessings flow for bobcats. Um, but my wife and I, we, we have landscaping rock all in, you know, throughout our yard. And we're like, we're going we're gonna to move, remove it, put some grass in, um, put some mulch in. I'm more of a mulch guy myself. Um, and, and, and yet we've just been pushing it off and off because it's like, I just don't want to do that. I really don't want a monkey with removing it. Um, so we were, my wife was looking at different options. You know, do you hire somebody to do it? Do you do it ourselves? How do we do it? We ended up like getting a, a bobcat and doing it, which was, which was a good plan. But at one point earlier this week, we just did this yesterday. Uh, at one point earlier this week, uh, she sent me this link to this website and, um, I want to read it for you. It, it was so wild because of just the timing of this. Uh, it's called His Workmanship is the company. And it says uh, this. Did you recently decide you want to replace all the rock around your house with mulch instead? <laughs> yes. Does the thought of breaking your back removing landscape rock give you nightmares? Actually, yes, it has. Um, fear not. Sit back and relax while we do the heavy lifting for you. Our college landscapers know the most efficient way to remove rock. Uh, and then it says, watch a video and then get some information on uh, pricing. And so it's this company called His Workmanship. It's located in Brooklyn Park. And at the top of their website, it, it says that we offer uh, landscape rock removal, and then it gives a price. And then it says, new customers can read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, to receive a $20 discount. <laughs> and this was the part that like really stuck out to me. Not because of the discount, but because when, when my wife sent me this, I go, that's what I'm preaching on this week. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And so the timing was just like uh, really kind of, kind of neat. And I thought, wow, what, what a cool business. You know, the college students, giving them an opportunity uh, to work and do a job that quite frankly many of us don't want to do. But then this company goes out there and says like, hey, if you're willing to read, if you're a new customer and you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we're going to give you a, a discount. And I don't know about you, but like, I don't run across that very often, if ever. And it's interesting because I'm like, why that verse or that text? You know, of all the verses and all the passages of Scripture in the Bible, like, they chose Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which I just, I just found uh, interesting. But what I'd like to show you today, and I, I think it makes sense why, is that at the heart of this passage, the Apostle Paul is telling us the truth of the reality of mankind and honestly how ugly we can be and how um, sin can take a hold of our life and cause us to live in ways that are in opposition, opposition to God. We can be really hurtful to one another. Um, and yet, despite that, God loves us and by his grace can do remarkable things 
through the brokenness of mankind. That by the power of God, he can take like us broken vessels and make us whole and use us in profound, amazing ways. As that he can take things that are literally dead, bring them back to life, things that take things that are ugly and make them beautiful. And so this is a message of salvation. It is a message of truth and a message of hope. That despite the headlines, despite all the struggling that we see in the world and that we may be facing in our life, despite what we have done and will do, there is hope. And maybe that's why his workmanship offers you $20 off because at the end of the day, they want you to know the hope that God has for you in your life. Let me read it for you. It says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even even when we were dead in transgressions, for it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, And this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, I think that's where they got their name, (laughs) created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in us, in in advance, for us to do. Um, This is sort of classic Paul, and we're going to see this throughout Ephesians. He He lays out very long, lengthy Uh, theologically deep sentences, but at the heart of what uh, Paul is saying here is he's, he's painting a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. Not just, I'm not just saying guys, fucking mankind, men and women. He's making a, a stark contrast between what we are by nature, but what we can become by the power of God, by the mercy of God by the grace of God. The first three verses are, they hit you. He goes to say, look, you're dead in your transgressions. You've been, um, you're ruled by sin. You live in the ways of the world. You're led by the leader of the world, Satan. Um, And there is a spirit of disobedience in all of us. In essence, what he's saying is he's saying, look, sin, it's nothing, it brings nothing but death. And you, you sort of go, what's, what's sin? And, and there can be a broad sort of definition um, of sin. But at the heart of what I think Paul is getting at in, def- in, in, in defining sin, it is that sin is at the core self-centeredness. And um, the further, you know, sin separates us from God. It's as, as simple and powerful as that. And the f- I find in my life, the farther I get from God, uh, the more self-centered I become. 
the more uh, self-focused I become. The more I become sort of Aaron-focused, world revolves around me, like people should uh, do what I want them to do, people should act the way I think they should act, people, you know, I, I look for uh, what is in my best interest. Martin Luther, he actually, listen to how he defined sin. He said, our nature is so d- deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly, which I don't think is a word, um, and viciously seeks all things, even God for its own sake. That is sin. That we are so curved in on ourselves, We're so self-centered, so self-justifying, so at times self-absorbed, that the human heart, it wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks to use all things, all opportunities, even God himself, for our own sake. Uh, a, a selfish heart, uh, it uses everything at its disposal to feed itself, to feed its ego. It serves nothing except the self. It uses everything to serve itself. Even God. If, if I can use God to, get, uh, to make me look good, I will. If I can use the Bible to, to justify, you know, that I'm right and you're wrong, I, I will. Like if I, you know, and it's how we can take even good things, even God, and use it for our own selfish ways. And this is at, this is at the heart of our sinful nature. <laughs> me, me, me. We, and, and we live in a sort of culture that's like... Uh, what have you done for me lately? And if it doesn't suit me, it doesn't meet, you know, my standards, then I'm, I'm done and gone with you. One pastor, um, in talking about how everything sort of defaults to centering around the self, said, think of it this way. To be a sinner is, to, is like having a little computer in the very center of your heart. It never stops. It never shuts down. It goes on and on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And do you know what it's doing? It's analyzing everything. It's viewing everything. It's seeing everything, every person, every object, every uh, interchange, every event, every setting. And it's basically saying, what's in it for me? Everything is being analyzed with regard of how it benefits your happiness, your glory, your power, your reputation, your comfort, your control of things. Everything is dealt to that degree. Everything is analyzed completely in terms of that. How does this help me? How does that person help me? How does it fit my interests? How does it make me happy? Everything is looked through that lens. Like the sinful human heart is like that computer. Constantly running, constantly trying to get us to look at every relationship, every circumstance, every opportunity, every moment in life, and ask the question, what's in it for me? How does it benefit me? How does it meet my needs? How does it make me feel good and make me feel better than the other person? That's self Setterness. And when you look at sin and you look at the brokenness in one's life, I mean, think about your sin right now. Like, think about the brokenness in your life right now, whatever you're dealing with. 
You look and you go, this, I just know this is wrong. I'm not, I don't like how I'm living. I mean, start to pull back the layers. And is self-centeredness there? I mean, you can look at uh, like the, the worst world powerful figures who have wreaked havoc on mankind and put people into slavery, executed massive amounts of people, put their people through suffering and pain. And you go, what is at the heart of these individuals? It's ego, it's power, it's self-centeredness. It's what's best for me, what makes me look good, what sets my legacy, what do I think is right. Therefore, I'll eliminate everyone that I think is wrong. What do I think is pure? Therefore, I'll eliminate anyone or anything that I look at as impure. I mean, you see like at the core of some of the worst leaders politicians, rulers that lived with self-centeredness. But then pull that back and you go, you know, I'm, none of us are world leaders, politicians. But look at how self-centeredness functions in your life, in your relationships. I mean, think about the struggles in your marriage. What's at the heart of those struggles? What often creates the most hurt? What often creates the, the, the separatists, the, the gaps, the, the division in your marriage is often it's just me being self-centered, me being what I want. Parenting, what, what often gets in the way of, of, of you being maybe the parent you want to be or the parent you know you should be. I know for me with little kids, like I get really tired and worn out and like, as of late, I've just reflected and I'm just like, I'm not the father I want to be. I'm quick, I'm short. And I know that when I start to get short with my kids and, and with people in general, um, I'm empty. And I, I'm, 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 I'm self-focused. I'm Aaron first. And so my kids' needs uh, become annoying to me. Because <laughs> I'm going to have to sacrifice. I mean, I'm at this stage where it's like, you got to give a give and give and give and give a lot. And, and, and when I start to get short with them, and it's because ultimately it's, I'd rather do my thing. I'd rather feel better and, and go take a nap or go look at my phone and play with you, which is ridiculous when you step back. You know, like all these things. I, I recognize like that self-centeredness is often the core of what's going on when I, when I am not a good father. Look at how it wreaks havoc in relationships, in friendships, in the church, in your community, in your social groups. That, that when, when, when it becomes about you, like it tears relationships apart. When you start to use people for like you, yourself and use them as sort of, you know, pawns in your life, it, it's hurtful because it's just not the way God designed us to be. It's not the way God designed us to live. And Jesus comes and he demonstrates this. We, we proclaim that Jesus was without sin. And in the way he lived his life, even in his death, he defines selflessness. 
In fact, he says, look, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And, I mean, a per- here's the son of God. He already has this status that he deserves to be served. And he goes, nope, I, I don't take that status and use it for my own benefit. I, I am taking the opportunity I have to love and to serve and to give, to pour out my heart for others. Even in his death, he, he, is, he, he uh, is found guilty for something he did not do. He's innocent. And yet, he doesn't speak up. He, he dies uh, an innocent man. And, he, and really what the Bible is telling us is he's taking our place on the cross. Like our sin should have put us on the cross. We were guilty of it. We're guilty and we deserve death. But Jesus in his selflessness says, no, I will take their place. I mean, imagine you're on death row and, and like you're, you're going to die later today. At midnight, they're going to walk you to the death chamber and they're going to put you to death. Imagine walking and then all of a sudden someone comes and he goes, stop, I will take her place. I will take his place. Then they go, okay. And they take the shackles off you, they put it on, on, on him, and they put him in the death chamber, and he dies. I mean, Im- imagine that for a second. Like, what would, that, what would that do to somebody? I mean, the, the profession of just love, that someone would step in when I deserve this, that an innocent man stepped in, and died the death I should have died? I mean, the, the, it, should, it, it, it should, you should well up with love that someone would do that for you. And would it not hopefully change the way then you're going to live the rest of your life? Like you were given another chance. You were walking to your death. And God stepped in. Jesus stepped in and said, I'll die so you can live. This is what Paul is saying here. This is what uh, Jesus has done for us. And he's saying, like, that, that should literally, like, smack us out of self-centeredness. Like, the selflessness of Christ. And when we look in what he's done, it should just smack us out of self-centeredness. And this is what I, I would say. What if uh, we, we started to ask ourselves a simple question throughout the day, in, in every interaction that we have, in every moment, we asked ourselves, like, how, how would Jesus respond in this? How would Jesus act in this, this moment? And I, I just, I don't, sometimes I can't go days without, like, thinking that. And, you know, I get in an interaction with somebody my kids or my wife, and, and, and what if I just for a second pulled back and I go, how, how, does Jesus, like, how does Jesus function in this moment? How would he respond to this moment? And in that split second, like even just stepping back and asking that question uh, could help reshape how you respond to that person or that, that moment or that experience. And, and so 
how do we sort of break out of the self-centeredness that is rooted in, in our sin? Well, Paul, he, he tells us. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. How many of us woke up this morning and we, the first thing we thought of, first thing we told ourselves was, today, what a gift today. Thank you, God. Maybe some of you did. I didn't. I got up and I started to just think about what I had to do today. And I just, I wonder if we get so consumed by what we've got to do, what we've got to accomplish. We get so consumed even by um, our past and what's happened to us or uh, the hopes of our future and what we want and what we think that if we get, we'll then be happy. Like, how does that rob us from recognizing the gifts that God has given us right now, today, right that's in front of us? That what if I, what if I was willing to, to recognize what Paul is saying here? Like, I, I wasn't, I, I'm not saved by how good of a man I am. Or how, how good of a person I am or how, you know, if I commit this many sins, then I'm good. But if I commit this many, then I'm not. That's not the scorecard. Paul is saying, you, you are given the gift because he's giving it to you because he loves you. Not because of what you've done or what you haven't done or, or your ancestry or the blood running through your veins. Like, it is a gift. And when you receive the gift, the expectation is that you would live in light of that gift. You ought to see everything in life as a gift. And not, I deserve this. Or I've worked hard for this, therefore I deserve this. Or I'm right, and therefore I deserve this. No, nope, God's gifted this. Everything I have is a gift. And at the heart of the most important gift that a person could receive, Jesus gave me salvation. He gave me life. He brought me from death to life. And I'm thankful. So in this moment, I just want to say thank you. That I, look at what God has given me. Look at how God has blessed me. A thankful heart, a person of gratitude is freed to live selflessly. And so we've got to live within the reality of our giftedness, that God has gifted us. Salvation, not because of what we've done, but because he's just given it to us because he loves us. If you live as a person who's been truly been given this wonderful gift, it will free you to live free, free from sin and free from self-centeredness. The second thing that frees us from self-centeredness is the status change that Paul says uh, has happened to us. He um, says this in verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
And you go, what, is that, what does that mean? So we've been raised up. This is past tense, by the way. Because we, we believe that Christians, when we die, we will be physically resurrected. That is part of our doctrine, our theology as Christians. But what Paul, he's using past tense. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Like, he did this already. This happened to you already. And you go, well, I'm not actually physically seated with Christ in the heavens. What Paul is saying, he's saying, legally you are. That when, like, legally you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You're seated with him. And, and ancient people would have totally understood this metaphor because um, if you were a conquering hero uh, and you went and you defeated the enemy, uh, you, would, you would return home to your home, your capital city, and you'd be met with a, a parade and, and majesty and celebration, and then you would be seated at the right hand of, of the king because it is the place of honor. It is the place of glory. And so ancient people, would have, they would have read this and they would have understood this because here's Jesus who comes and he, he came and he fought the, the death itself and he defeated death itself and now he is placed at the right hand of God because why? It is the seat of glory. It's a seat of honor. But, but Paul, he has that essay to say that you're seated there with him. And what, what Paul is getting is there's been a complete status change for you. Because the seat that you and I deserve to sit on is one of sin, shame, and judgment. And, and the gospel, the good news is Jesus comes and he sits on that seat. He takes your spot. Which then allows us to sit in his spot. Listen to how John uh, Stott, how he put it. If I can find it. We'll put it up on the screen. That'll help me. There we go. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And if you go back to the beginning of the self-centeredness of those first three verses, in essence, that's what he's, he's saying is, and I'll go back, sorry, to the quote. Um, he's saying that we, we, we are prone to substitute ourselves for, for God. But what God does in his amazing love for us is he puts himself in our spot. He takes our seat and he sits on the seat of shame and condemnation and death so that we could be seated with him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And what does that mean? It means legally, when the, when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your mess, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your darkness, your selfishness. He sees, he sees Christ in you. He doesn't see you as guilty, he sees you as innocent. And all of the benefits that come with being seated at the right hand of God, the fame, honor, and glory, God is giving to you and to me. Is that not amazing? And Paul is saying, see, if, if, if you let this get into your heart and take control of your, your heart, 
you live, you live in, it will, you're not going to live self-centered. You're going to live selfless. You're going to look a lot like Jesus. And that's what we're asked to do. In light of the gift that Jesus has given us, live like Jesus. Live like Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. Jesus, um, we all fall short, but thank you for your grace that covers us. Thank you that, Lord, um, we look at ourselves and we, we, we may see ugliness and selfishness and sin and darkness, but because of you, Jesus, for those of us who have by faith professed our allegiance to you, that, Father, you see Jesus in us. And I don't know, I, I think about the fact, Jesus, that you stepped into my shame and my condemnation and my guilt and you, you died the death I deserve and I, I'm humbled by that and I, I pray that it would humble us. That we would receive it because we don't deserve it. But you offer it and I pray that those here this morning would receive it because it's true for them too. And I pray that it would reshape how we live our lives. I pray that it would reshape how we, we live in every interaction with one another. And I pray that we would live in the freedom, Jesus, that you died to give us. And in Jesus' name, break the power of sin at work in us. And we claim the healing power of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.